Now, Father, we come once again to this glorious gospel of John, and there is so much to learn, and it seems so little time to really delve into these things. So I pray, Lord, now would you reveal to us the glory of your triune presence? Would you reveal to us the significance of the reality that we are loved by the triune God? Not just the Son, but the Spirit and the Father as well. And encourage us, Lord, and strengthen us for the difficulties that lie ahead. We know not what they are, but we know they will come. And so we ask you, Father, do for us even more than than what you were able to do for the disciples on this particular evening in the upper room. They were hearing from your mouth the promises. We can experience the fulfillment of what you promised. And so, Lord, I pray, send your spirit to change us, to instruct us, to protect us, to feed us and lead us. And conform us to the image of your Son, because we know this is your goal. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John 14. Let's stand together, and we'll read this. Stand with me in honor of God's word, and we'll read John John 14, beginning with verse 15. An extensive portion of scripture, and I hope to cover all of it this morning. And you'll see why here in just a moment. But John 14, beginning with verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my command, who does not keep my word. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have commanded you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be afraid. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, You would have rejoiced that I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commands me. Get up and let us go from here. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. <clears throat> Here's a question for you. When you think of God, what comes to your mind? Do you think of him as a grandfather in the sky who is eager to spoil you with the goodies? 
or grandparents are for, right? I'm that. <laughs> Do you think of him as a traffic cop, always on the lookout for some minor infraction so that he can bring down the hammer of the law? Do you think of him as too distant to care or too close for comfort? In your mind, is he a loving God, an angry God, a legalistic God, or just a happy Buddhist-like deity who can hardly ever be displeased? The reality is that what you believe about God, what you believe about God, really matters. And I'm talking to you as believers, primarily. This is not primarily an evangelistic sermon, although I trust the Lord can use it to bring someone to faith this morning and pray he does. But I'm speaking to you who already know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are already in the family of God. What you believe about your God really matters. A.W. Tozer once in his book, uh, the Knowledge of the Holy once famous, famously wrote, wrote these words, What comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is not only for the individual Christian, but for the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, end quote. And I would just say, unfortunately, it's probably safe to assume that what most people think about God, the picture of God that they hold most dear, is not one that is correct. It's not one revealed in Scripture. But we have here before us this morning an amazing revelation of who God is. An amazing revelation of who God is and how he relates to his people. And if we, could, if we could conform our thinking to this revelation of who God is, this triune God, and understand who we are in the light of who he is, I think we would grow into Christ's likeness more speedily and more readily and more powerfully than we have. These 16 verses may very well be the most Trinitarian passage in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, I think. It's just my evaluation. It's not scientific. But I was blown away this week at the Trinitarian nature of this passage. And by that, I mean it's not often, even in the Gospel of John, where you see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talked about all together in the same text. But here it's everywhere. In fact, if you were to take a piece of paper and kind of print off this passage and, uh, and, and mark every mention, every noun, every pronoun, every name mentioned where it's talking about either God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, I think you're amazed because I was this week. I was going around the office saying, look at this. I mean, just visually, look at this. You know, the blue is spirit, the red is the Father, and the, the orange, that's Jesus. And it just totally filled the page. This passage is all about God. And for those who study the Gospel of John, this passage is typically viewed, viewed as a major teaching of John on the Holy Spirit. Nearly every commentator I read this week could hardly wait to unpack what this passage reveals about the Holy Spirit. And it's true. It's true. This is an extremely important passage about the Holy Spirit. If you want to know the ins and outs of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you've got to wrestle with John chapter 14. It's an extremely important passage. Nevertheless, I don't believe, I don't believe Jesus' purpose was to offer a lecture on the third person of the Trinity. He wasn't giving them a course on, on Trinitarianism. He wasn't giving them a course on pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. 
He was doing something else. Remember, this was his last night with them. What Jesus is doing is offering the deepest, weightiest words of comfort and assurance that could ever be offered to his disciples in a moment when they were most likely to be tempted by fear and worry and anxiety. Now, why do I think Jesus' purpose is to address the swelling anxiety in the hearts of these men? That's a good question. And there are three major clues that lead me there. And let me show them to you. Verse 1, chapter 14. Turn with me there if you have to flip your page like I do. It's just the first verse. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then skip from verse 1 to verse 27. And watch this. Um, my, oops, I flipped too many pages. That's why it's wrong. <laughs> I thought I haven't seen that verse all week. Verse 27. <laughs> peace I leave you. Good thing. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give them to you. Now listen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Exactly the same phrase. And then again in verse 27, and I read this already. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you peace. So here is the promise of peace in place of trouble. A peaceful heart. A heart that is assured. A heart that is stable in the midst of trial. Rather than one that is troubled. Most of what Jesus says in this passage happens between the two bookends, these exhortations, do not let your heart be troubled. And so I think it's safe to say this is Jesus' point. He's trying to encourage his disciples. And so I have to conclude Jesus' point is to give his disciples something that will quench the fire of the fear and anxiety that was about to become a raging inferno in their souls. Now, I don't think that the disciples really got what he was saying because they were wracked by fear after this. They did run for their lives. They did an awful lot wrong. But this teaching, after the resurrection, after Jesus is glorified, would put a ballast in their boat that would keep their little bark from sinking in the face of many, many storms. Now, it'll repay us, again, to take a moment to remember the context as I said, Jesus and his men are still in the upper room. This is the last night. He's just revealed to them that he's leaving. They can't come with him, which is astonishing to them. They've been with him for three years, and suddenly, what, you're leaving? Something bad was about to happen that would take Jesus away from them. They didn't yet know what events were about to transpire, but Jesus knew, and it was going to be worse than his disciples were imagining. Jesus, therefore, begins to reveal to them truths about God and his relationship with the redeemed that are absolutely astounding and are designed, as I said, to put a weighty ballast in their boat to preserve them against the coming storm. Now, we've talked about ballast before, right? I mean, we're 1700s. Everybody knew about ballast. If you traveled by water, you knew what a ballast was because uh, if, you, if you launch a boat, you remember they got those tall spires? Right? Everybody just nod your head if you're with me, okay? Uh, see that hand. <laughs> um, it's tall spires. You launch a boat into the water after building it for however many years it takes, and if you don't have a ballast, what's going to happen? Those spires are going to go, thump, and the boat's going to flip right upside down. So what's a ballast? A ballast is this heavy, heavy weight in the bottom of the boat to keep the boat upright. And spiritually speaking, there is no ballast greater doctrine of God. Jesus wants them to know their God, and he wants to know the privileged relationship that they and we have with the triune God. We might call this passage a divine discourse on the exclusive privileges of the believer's union with the triune God. 
I know that's packed. It's not in your bulletin, and I don't expect you to write it down, but let me just say it again. We might call it a divine discourse on the exclusive privileges of the believer's union with the triune God. You realized how privileged you are? Or do you just think of yourself as just a, another American living out his days in this world, trying to make a living, trying to pay the bills? Do you realize the exclusivity of your relationship with the triune God? Jesus is revealing that to give them the peace, the stability, the assurance to combat their fear. Because, you know, once you get gripped by the fear and the anxiety, um, you're going to spiral. These men were going to be hit by some of the worst trials human beings could ever be hit with. They needed to know. Um, so we learn these things. Let's remember that Jesus is revealing them not only for their comfort, but for ours. So what are the exclusive privileges of a believer's union with the triune God? I'm going to approach this text a little differently this morning because I think it's helpful for us to not get bogged down in specific verses and lose sight of the forest. Sometimes you lose, you lose the forest for the trees, right? There's a beautiful forest here. So we have to kind of get in our little drone and get up over it and look down. Forget about bird's eye view. This is drone's eye view. To look down upon this whole passage, or at least this whole section of this, of this passage, to see what Jesus is doing, to see it kind of all together so that we'll feel the weight of it. So what are these exclusive privileges? Number one, the exclusive privilege of divine love. The exclusive privilege of divine love. Love is an important theme in the Gospel of John. It's used as a verb or a noun a total of 56 times in the Gospel of John. Of those 56, 10 of them are right here. When you read the Gospel of John and his three smaller letters, it becomes clear that John was deeply, deeply affected by the doctrine of the love of God and his experience of the love of God. I mean, when I was praying earlier, Lord, how can this be? I think, I think John prayed that every day. Lord, I don't understand how you can love us. I understand the doctrine. He understood the doctrine. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He knew more and with greater depth than any of us, maybe all of us put together, because he was an apostle, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes. But he never lost the awe. He never lost the wonder of being loved by God. It was amazing to him. He was overwhelmed by the reality that almighty creator God loved him. And one way we see that in the Gospel of John is by the fact that as John is writing out gospel, this story of the life and times of Jesus Christ, what we find is John hardly ever refers to himself, and when he does, he never refers to himself by his proper name. He never calls himself John. He always refers to himself as what? The one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. He's amazed by that. He knew the privilege of being loved by Christ. In our day, the world's idea of love is, is on display everywhere we look, and it's gross, and it's twisted. And usually when popular musicians sing about, when they sing about love, it's not very impressive or impactful to the soul, pretty mundane, pretty vacuous, empty, right? Take, for example, that blockbuster hit of the 1960s, when the Beatles came out with that song that was entitled, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> and even to this day, that's thought of as a classic. Now, I don't want you thinking about that. But by the world's standards, this was a classic. This is a classic song about love. But isn't it true that popular songs about love usually portray Love is really little more than a feeling that involves certain unfulfilled desires, longings, and expectations that never really get satisfied. Not so with the love of God. Not so with the love of God. 
God's love, as revealed in Scripture, is always a purposeful act of self-giving. I've given you another definition of love, but this is a good one. Love is a purposeful act of self-giving. The other definition I've given you so many times is love is to give. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to. That's a good definition. But this is even more compressed. It is a purposeful act of self-giving. The one who genuinely loves is deliberately devoted to the one loved. And what we learn in Scripture is that true love arises from the will, not from the emotions. If it's an emotion, I mean, you fall in love and you can fall out of love and probably will. Even, even love to the one you're married to. Um, that's not biblical love. That's not God's love. That's not the kind of love his people should have for one another. It's not about the emotions. It's about the, the will. As explained by the Apostle Paul when he describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. And on and on and on. Each one of these things is an act of the will. It's an act of the will. All of these characteristics of love proceed toward another person as an act of the will and often contrary to one's emotions. You can love someone, truly love them in a way that is contrary to your emotions and toward the leanings and movings of your heart. With that in mind, consider the following remarkable statements found in, uh, or this one particular statement in John's gospel. With that understanding of what true love is, to love is to give. Love is to be self-giving. And this same John, in his first epistle, will describe God this way. God is God is love, 1 John 4, 7. One commentator writes, by saying God is love, the apostle is making a very strong statement about the character and essence of God. It is God's very nature to love. Love permeates who he is. Or as John Stott has written, God is love in his innermost being. Stott calls the Apostle's declaration that God is love the most comprehensive and sublime of all the biblical affirmations about God's being. God is the consummate self-giver. So many of us have the wrong idea of God. We have the wrong image of God, even as believers. We think of him merely as one who makes demands, or who issues commands, or one who just throws down judgments. But the reality is, God is the great giver. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And even when he disciplines, he's disciplining us because we refuse to receive what he wants to give and what is best for us. And so the gospel is all about God giving to sinners what we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. And so he gives it. As Jesus explains, this is the way Jesus said it to Nicodemus, God so loved the world. Actually, I love it in Greek better. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son, his only one. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is the giver. God is the giver. And so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. Why? You give to your wife. That's how you love your wife. Why? Because that's how God loves you. That's how Christ loves you. This is God. And John was amazed by the fact that, that God loved him. 
We know that God does not love everyone the same. Many in the world will spend eternity in a place far removed from the love of God by their own choice, by their own choice, their own rejection of his love. But at the same time, John knew that the only, reason, the only reason he was a recipient of God's love was because God pursued him. In fact, we read, again, in his first epistle, we love because he, that is God, first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. God is always the giver. He is always the initiator in his relationships of love. And so it is no small thing when we come to this passage and discover that Jesus repeatedly refers to this relationship of love between God and Jesus' disciples, and by extension, all of us who believe. Now, I've spent a lot of time describing love here, because I want you to see that when Jesus mentions it, it is no small thing. Now, let me show you where it is in this text. In the interest of time, I'll just kind of read them off. Look at verse 15. This is the very, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. It's the second verse in this passage. Um, No, it's verse 15. (laughs) He says, if you what? If you love me. Now jump down to verse 21. The one who loves me. Again, in verse 21. He who loves me. Again, verse 21, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, that is, the believer. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, verse 23 again, my Father will love him, verse 24. He who does not love me, and that's an important contrast here that we need to take note of. In verse 28, if you loved me, and verse 31, I love you the Father. Now, we just covered a major portion of this text because there's so much in here referring to this relationship of love between God, the triune God, and his people. What Jesus wants us to see, I believe, is that those who follow him enjoy an exclusive relationship of mutual love with Almighty God. And beloved, I would just say, Keep your mind engaged here, but I want you in your heart of hearts to sit back for a moment and let that sink in. God loves you, not because you deserve it, not because you've won it, not because you've earned it, but because God is love. God has made you the special object of his attention, his provision, his protection, his redemption, and his affection. As the Apostle Paul will say it, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's his doing. Your salvation is primarily his doing. In one sense, it's exclusively his doing. And John never got over the massive, glorious, and eternal implications of being saved into an exclusive relationship of mutual love with the living God. And he learned it from Jesus. And Jesus taught it to his disciples to strengthen their faith and give them comfort in the coming storm. And this is the first exclusive privilege of following Jesus, the privilege of divine love. And it is not for everyone. It is only for those who believe. Secondly, we also see in this passage the exclusive privilege of divine provision. Again, Jesus is seeking to put a weight, a ballast in their little boat to comfort them, to assure them, to steady them for the coming storm. And and watch this. What provision is Jesus going to give? And they're going to need something big. They need something big to sustain them through the rest of their lives. Verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and will give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. That is, 
the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. When you love someone, you provide for their needs. When you love someone, you provide for their needs. Jesus is saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. When I go away, I will represent you before the Father. You should love the fact that I'm leaving you. I'm going to the Father, and I will represent you there. And, and I, will, I will offer requests on your behalf. And the first one, the biggest one, the most important one, I will ask him to send you another helper. This is an amazing promise in itself. I mean, just thinking about the reality that Jesus represents you before the Father. He represents you before the Father. The book of Hebrews says he always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession. He's not just sitting on the throne. Hey, Dad, how are you? Fine, son, how are you? How's your day been? Well, they found Pluto again. Sounds exciting. Nothing else going on. No, 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 no. Jesus, the Son, is with the Father. And he's pleading for us. And the first and most significant thing that he asked for was that the Father would send us his Spirit. The Spirit of truth. This is an amazing promise in itself that Jesus represents us before the Father. Therefore, because he represents the Father, because he died on our behalf, because he rose again and was glorified and seated at the right hand of God, Paul says, how will he then not also with him, that is with Christ, freely give us all things? How will God ever say no? He's already given us his son. How would any smaller, minimal request ever be denied? So notice what he will ask for on our behalf. The helper, the parakletos, um, is the Greek here. And it's used by John um, throughout the book, chapter 14, 26, 15, 16, and then in 1 John 2 again. It's interesting, the King James, uh, I think, has this verse Jesus saying uh, that I will send you another comforter, which is interesting. I think it's a mistranslation, and it actually is translated from the Latin, not the Greek. Uh, The Latin word here is um, a comforter. Um, Cum, the beginning of that word, means with and forte. Forte. How many of you are musicians? And you look at the music sheet, and it'll, it'll give you a little F, forte, or two Fs, double forte, It means play with power, play with more power. Forte means power or strength. Comforter means with power, with strength. And so in the Latin, it is, I will pray, I will represent you before the Father, and I will ask for one to come with power. In the Greek, it is parakletos, another helper, Another helper. Helper means one who is called alongside. That is what parakletos means. One who is called alongside to assist. The Holy Spirit does not work instead of us or in spite of us, but in us and through us. Another helper. And, and the word another is significant here. I will, I will send you another helper. This is There are different ways to say this in Greek. It could mean another of a different kind or another of the same kind. And here it's another of the same kind. And Jesus is saying, I'm your helper. I've been your helper. When I go to the Father, I will send you, I will ask, and he will send you another helper, another helper of the same kind as me. We might say, made of the same stuff. He is God. He is God. 
Jesus also calls him the spirit of truth in this passage. And that is the one who is the source of all truth and the one who will guide us into truth. But remember, we said that these things are exclusive privileges. So notice the next phrase. Jesus says, um, verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. Beloved, this is an exclusive privilege. It's for you who believe. You get, you have the Holy Spirit. Those who are of the flesh, Romans 8 says, cannot please God. The world cannot receive him because it does not see him or know him. But, Jesus says, you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I wish we had time to unpack that, but let's keep going. That is the provision of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the provision of Jesus' presence. The provision of Jesus' presence. Look at verses 18 and 19. I will not leave you as orphans. Again, Jesus concerned. How is my leaving going to affect them? They're going to be anxious. They're going to be fearful. They're going to feel isolated and alone. They're going to feel like it's them against the world. And in in a sense, it was. But Jesus makes this promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is, this is no doubt intended to relieve the disciples' immediate concern that Jesus was going to leave them to fend for themselves. I'm not going to do that. I am going to leave you, but I'm not leaving Peter in charge. <laughs> Everybody's like, Whew, good. I'm not going to leave you to fend for yourselves. Rather, Jesus is promising his continued personal presence. The frequent promise of God in the Old Testament is this, I will be with you. To Joshua, he said, I will be with you wherever you go. And David knew this truth. God's promise to be with his people. I remember as a kid, I used to think, when I'd hear prayer and, and uh, I would hear people pray, Lord, just be with so-and-so, and I'd think, hmm, um, surely they know God is everywhere. And, but why do they pray God be with them? I think sometimes from the pulpit I often pray, Lord, you who are with us, Come. Come in an experiential way. Come in such a way that changes me. Come in such a way that puts me under the sway of your spirit. And I don't mean in some kind of ethereal um, miracle state. I just, I just mean, God, I, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to be in full submission to you. Come, rule me, lead me, help me. Let my leader be God. Let, let my counselor be the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of his presence. You remember David in Psalm 23. He's talking about the valley of the shadow of death, and yet he says, I will not fear, for you are what? with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. It's his presence. It's as if Jesus was saying, you remember the good shepherd of Psalm 23? It's me and my ministry. Even though I'm leaving, that ministry is not over. I'm leaving you for a little while, but then I will never leave you again. Throughout the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is personally with us in person in the Holy Spirit. 
Until Paul can speak in Colossians 1.27 about the great mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, this is an exclusive privilege. Look at verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. It's not for everyone. Not everyone will see me. It's interesting, after his resurrection, the only people that we know saw him were his disciples and other believers. The world will not see me, but you will see me. They would see him physically after the resurrection, and they would see him spiritually through the eyes of faith as he fellowship with them and worked powerfully through them by his Holy Spirit. Verse 26, John speaks again of the Holy Spirit, who will so move in the apostles that they would remember all that Jesus said to them. I mean, it had to be one of their fears. Okay, you're leaving us. How will we even remember? This, this will be my, one of my questions. How am I even going to remember what you taught us? And Jesus says he would send the Holy Spirit who would remind you of everything that I have taught you. He would be there to remind them. He is the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth will remind you, his apostles, of everything that Jesus taught. By the way, this has amazing implications on the doctrine of inspiration and preservation of Scripture. It was all superintended by the Spirit. And Jesus would provide for them personally through his Holy Spirit. And, and how is it personal and yet through someone else? Because we're talking about God. We're talking about the triune God. I mean, they are different in person, but they are one in essence. You can't divide them up. And so to have the Holy Spirit is to have Jesus. To have the Holy Spirit is to have the Father and number three, Jesus would not only provide for them personally, but number three, he would, uh, he would offer the provision of resurrection. He would give them the provision of resurrection. Look at verses 19 through 21. After a little while, let's see, verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and will disclose myself to them. But look back at the end of verse 19 where he says, because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. The world will not see me, but you will see me. This is a promise of resurrection. They would see him physically after the resurrection, and they would see him spiritually. But more than that, even after he is gone, they had the assurance that because death was unable to conquer Christ, death would be unable to conquer them either. Death is now a doorway. It is not the end. Jesus says, remember uh, outside of Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives now and believes in me will what? Never die. Never die. If you're a believer, you'll never die. You will see life even in death. Your experience of death will only be the doorway to greater life. Because he lives, you also will live. That's our great hope. Because of the resurrection, we have life. We have life. For the disciples and for us, this means we never need to fear death. What's the worst thing a person can do to you? Kill you? <laughs> it's true. But because God loves us, he has promised us eternal life in his son. Death no longer has claim on us. It has lost its sting and has been rendered powerless against God's people. For those who belong to Christ, death is simply a doorway into eternal life. So Jesus provides resurrection. Number four, he gives us the provision of fellowship with God. And this is verses 20 and 21. And I just read them, but let me read them again. They're so amazing. In that day, you will know, listen carefully to these words. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, 
and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You remember back up in verse 8? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. And Jesus said, verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Have, you, have I been with you this long, and you have not known me? In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is, this, is, this is beyond words. This is not just Jesus loves me, this I know. This is God the Father loves me with an infinite love that will never pass away. This is the Holy Spirit knows me in and out and loves me eternally. This is the Son. Yes, Jesus loves me, but so does the Spirit and so does the Father. They are in agreement, and not only that, but they have drawn me in to fellowship. This is union. This is union with God. This is our exclusive privilege of living a life in union with the triune God. When you love someone, you enjoy their presence. That's what makes this amazing. That God delights to have us in his presence. Isn't that amazing? Why? I know me. I'm not sure I could uh, enjoy being in my presence all the time. Did I hear amen from my children? Oh, I only have one in here. (laughs) That's why God's love is so amazing. This is the great and glorious mystery. Not only that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, but that by grace and incomparable love, we are brought in we are brought into union and communion with this triune God. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This new life, Jesus is promising, consists of a new relationship with God. I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so through the indwelling spirit, believers are united with Jesus. And he says it in different ways. In the next chapter, he would say it like this. I am the vine. You are the what? Branches. This is union. This is an organic connection, spiritually speaking, between us and God. Between us and Christ. We are his body. He is our what? Head. I mean, how closely connected is a head to the body? Without the head, the body is what? Dead. You see what he's doing here? This is union. We are stones in his spiritual house, and he is the what? The cornerstone. He is the bride, and we are the groom. This is a marriage, this is a covenant. Vine and branches. All of these things, all metaphors that Jesus and the apostles use is all intended to say the same thing. We are in union with God. Paul expressed this profound privilege of the union between us and God by using the term in Christ. For example, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he is a what? A new creation. You've been recreated. In some sense, you have been recreated. This is creation language, okay? God speaks and it appears. It's the same way with coming into relationship with God. It's like raising the dead. Lazarus, come forth. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. This is union with Christ. And it's everywhere in the New Testament. In fact, isn't it theologically true that every privilege that a believer has comes to us by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. We have union with him. And if you are in Christ, something is true of you that you should never, ever doubt. Namely, verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. You get this? The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Spirit loves you. You say, is this a self-esteem message? I'm not saying you should love you. You should love God. You should love your neighbor. This isn't about you being impressed with you. No, no. This is you being overwhelmed by the reality that eternal holy God should look at a worm like me and love me. If you are in Christ, this is all true of you. All of these and many more are exclusive privileges of the believer's union with God. And Jesus revealed them again specifically for our comfort and our assurance. But there's one other thing in this text that we dare not miss. We've seen the exclusive privilege of divine love, the exclusive provision of Jesus' presence, and now finally and briefly, the exclusive evidence of saving faith. The question here is, how does one know that he or she has been brought into this exclusive union with God? How does one know that he or she has been brought into their exclusive relationship with the triune God? How do you know? Is it because you prayed a prayer one day? What verse is that? Signed a sticker in the back of your Bible to drive in the stake? Was that Second Charles Finney verse what? I don't mean to be glib about this. Well, the Finney one I do, but um, this is really important because we're in the South. And you know what one of the problems of gospel ministry in the South is? Everybody thinks they're a believer. Everybody thinks they have this relationship with God, and it's just not so. And Jesus clearly gives us the qualification here. Um, how do we know if we believe God? That's a great question, and Jesus repeats the answer four times. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me, here's the contrast, does not keep my word. John, in his first epistle, will come back to this theme. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And we try to make this all real complicated and everything, but here's what John says, not very complicated. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, and the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love, there it is again, his brother. God is love. You are in God. How do you know that you are in God? Do you love in obedience to God. And anything else that God desires you to do as an expression of his love, his grace, his holiness, his mercy, his loving kindness, these are not the only places where Jesus emphasizes the mark of 
of, obedient, of an obedient life as evidence for true love for God. In chapter 15, this next chapter in the Gospel of John, verse 14, he will say this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And we may ask, well, wait a minute here. I thought salvation was by grace through faith, apart from works. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. You can't earn your way to God. You can't earn your way to heaven. And so why is obedience a necessary mark of one who is truly in Christ and therefore a lover of God? The answer may be more simple than you would suppose. And here's the answer. Obedience is essential because the very essence of sin is disobedience. The very essence of sin is disobedience. Romans 8, 7 the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It is not as though man's obedience earns him a relationship with God. To the contrary, it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Not going to be any boasting in heaven. I figured it out. Figured out the gospel. I had the greatest church in the world. They told me the gospel. No, no, no. Uh, it's not about boasting. No, no boasting in heaven except this. I was helpless and undone without God, without hope in this world, but God. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when I was dead, my transgressions made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I am saved. I make my boast not in me, but in the Lord. It's not about earning anything from God. Rather, our obedience is simply evidence of our character, the mark of our condition before God, the proof that we have entered into union with the triune God. Obedience is not about legalism. Rather, it is, listen, it is faith and love in action. It is faith and love walking with God. Who can you think of in your mind who is the person that you know who walked with God better than anybody? Who do you know who loved God more than anybody else in the world? Who was it who enjoyed the presence of God more than anybody else in the world? Who was it who spent time in prayer? You know, I don't know how often, but we finally, we find him in the New Testament often getting up early in the morning to pray and spend time with his father. Who was that? Who was this one who said, I do everything in obedience to the father? It was Jesus there wasn't any legalism there. There wasn't any earning anything from God. If you want proof of that, all you have to do is look at the very last verse in this section, in this chapter. Here's what Jesus says. But that the world may know that I love the Father. Remember the test. How do I know that you love the Father? You know that you love the Father if you keep his commands, if you obey his word. And Jesus, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, listen, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. That's how. That's how you know. It's evidence, not earning. It's evidence. It's a mark. It's not payment. It is, listen, these are the dynamics of the Trinity, there is order, there is authority, there is Father, there is Son, and there is Holy Spirit, and they are in that order. The Son always submits to the Father. The Spirit always submits to the Son and the Father. Why would we think any differently if we are part of that relationship? Why would we think that we don't need to obey as well? 
Our obedience is simply acting like Jesus. It's acting like the Holy Spirit. It is living in loving, submissive action toward God. Because you love him, you will obey him. That's why John can say in his first epistles, his his commandments are not burdensome. It's why David could say, oh, how I love your law. Obedience isn't about legalism. Rather, it's faith in action, love in action, faith and love walking with God. Spurgeon said this, it is better to have a faith that obeys than a faith that moves mountains because the faith that obeys marks us as children of God. Children of God. If you're a child of God, you want to obey. You want to submit. You came to Christ, probably the first thing you said was, God, forgive me of my sin. Now do with me whatever you please. You say the word, I'll do it. And you know what? You haven't done it perfectly, have you? I was really encouraged by this in the last minute that I have here. Let me just say this, and I don't have time to show you, but um, remember Peter, right? Peter and his, his failures, constant. You can just go through all the apostles, or at least the ones that we know anything about in the New Testament. Failures. Uh, we know that as soon as Judas arrives, they're all going to run. They're going to run for their lives. They're not going to seize hold of the comfort that Jesus is offering them here, the peace. They're going to miss it. Peter's going to deny him three times. But you know what? In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, you've given them to me, and I have kept them, and they have kept your word. You know why that encourages me? (laughs) Because they didn't do it perfectly, and neither do I. So what's that tell you? Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God knows the hearts of his people. He knows that we are made of dust. He knows that we're frail and given to failure. He knows how we're tempted. He was tempted tempted in the same manner as we are, yet without sin. And he knows that when we're tempted, we often do sin. And yet, and yet, he reckons us as righteous by grace through faith. Does that mean we shouldn't pursue obedience? No. You show me someone who lives in deep fellowship with God, and I'll show you someone who loves to obey God. Loves to obey God. If the Holy Spirit's job is to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ, then he will give us a heart to obey his word. Not only that, but he will give us a desire to help others discover the joy of living in obedience to him. Just as the Great Commission says, Jesus said, Go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? To obey everything that I've commanded you. Why? This is what it means to be my disciple. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this and that? And I will say, you're not one of mine. You will not enter the kingdom. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things I command you? This is the mark. This is the evidence. All of these things Jesus taught his disciples on their final evening together because he was determined to strengthen their faith and give them assurance that they would be able to endure the coming storm because God loved them with an everlasting love. Is this how you view God? Do you know him as the lover of your soul, the consummate giver who knows what we need and abundantly provides for us in Christ by his Holy Spirit? If not, then you can come to him today by faith. And perhaps he will give you the grace to trust him even now. All you need to do is ask. Just ask. And you will receive. Knock. And the door will be open to you. He will not resist. He loves you. How could the disciples have peace in the midst of this coming storm? It's because they were about to enter into an exclusive relationship with the triune God who loved them. 
And beloved, what they were looking forward to, you already have. Isn't that glorious? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for these things. We praise you for these deep, rich truths. And though I feel like I present them so poorly, and yet your spirit works in our hearts to cut through anything that blocks the light of the glory of Jesus Christ to reveal to us the glory of God. So, Father, I pray that you would use this word to change us and to cause us to see how glorious you are and what a privilege it is to be yours and to live for you and to delight in your word, to delight in obedience, to delight in fellowship, communion with you more than anything else in this life. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem us. We are unworthy of it, but oh, so grateful. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.